From Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. Well, a closely watched trial is set to begin. The ComEd 4, as they've been called, include the utility Commonwealth Edison's former CEO and three others accused of a scheme to curry favor with House Speaker Michael Madigan. Prosecutors allege that ComEd gave out jobs, money, contracts, all in an effort to get beneficial legislation through at the State House. And we'll be discussing the trial that is just ahead, as well as new estimates on the state's financial health. It's all coming up on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield, and with us today we have Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former Director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. Charlie's also been a longtime State House reporter and observer. And joining us, we have Ray Long, longtime reporter with the Chicago Tribune, and Ray's also the author of The House That Madigan Built, which chronicles the rise and fall of the former Illinois House Speaker. Ray, it's always good to have you back with us. Good to be back, Sean. Thank you. So, Ray, you're getting set because this trial is going to get underway next week, and we've been hearing it could go as long as two months. The media, as I mentioned, has dubbed them the ComEd 4, and we're not talking about Michael Madigan here, but we will talk about him in a little bit. This group that will be on trial includes the former CEO of Commonwealth Edison, Ann Promajori, also the former ComEd lobbyist, John Hooker, Jay Doherty, and a Madigan associate, Mike McLean. So what can we expect once this gets underway? Well, I think even though this does not put Mike Madigan on trial, it, it certainly puts his practices on trial. And this will be a curtain raiser, not only for uh, what is happening behind the scenes in Illinois, but it will be a curtain raiser for the Madigan trial which is uh, also featuring as co-defendant Mike McLean. That's set for April 1st, 2024. This trial uh, arises from the same type of, of uh, activity that prosecutors have charged. And this will also get to the old question of how much can you bend the rules before uh, uh, old time lobbying becomes a crime. And uh, in this case, the uh, uh, prosecutors have alleged that there is an array of bribery and conspiracy and uh, extortion type schemes that ran from 2011 to 2019. That's including a plot that would uh, steer two Madigan allies uh, ComEd uh, internships, a numerous number of internships to from uh, uh, ComEd to people in Madigan's ward. Uh, it also would include a variety of jobs given to Madigan allies and uh, who weren't uh, required to do a whole lot of work, at least allegedly so. And um, the uh, other allegations in, include that uh, Madigan uh, put uh, or uh, really uh, worked hard to put uh, a uh, one-time nemesis uh, on the uh, ICC Board of Directors. Now, this is a state-regulated board and federal-regulated uh, industry. And so we have uh, these types of of issues coming up. And uh, the allegation is that the company tried to shower all these various uh, 
gifts on Madigan as well as uh, uh, money toward a law firm run by Victor Reyes, a longtime figure in the Hispanic committee or community rather uh, here in Chicago. He was a, a Madigan ally that was given contracts and they are going to allege that all this was done to get on Madigan's good side so he would favor ComEd's legislative agenda. And of course, Sean and Charlie, you know that they had some pretty big success here from 2000 through to, uh, 2011, where they got their so-called smart grid plan in place and a variety of other uh, initiatives that a lot of uh, folks think were probably too lucrative for for the company. Uh, a lot of critics, anyway, think that. And there, uh, they went through some other changes in the legislature, uh, including in 2016, they uh, got another consumer subsidy uh, approved that would help uh, the company keep <clears throat> a couple of uh, the nuclear power plants, including the one in, in Clinton, uh, uh, going, and there would be, of course, uh, thousands of jobs that went along with the saving of these various nuclear power plants. So it, it really is going to be a high-profile case, and we expect it to roll out here very quickly next next week or the week after. Maybe you can just clarify something legally for me here. The the company, or I should say the utility, Commonwealth Edison, already admitted to a bribery scheme. In fact, I believe they're paying off uh, a fine, paying back to ratepayers. So what's to be decided here exactly if the company, if, if the utility has agreed that, yes, some law was broken? Well, uh, they're, they're putting the crimes on the backs of these four people. The four people, Mike McLean, as you mentioned, is a longtime former lawmaker, former Democratic lawmaker from Quincy, who was a longtime confidant also of Speaker Madigan. He was kind of the Madigan whisperer, if you will. And uh, the allegations are that he was instrumental in working backroom deals that helped uh, keep the company on Madigan's good side. Uh, they also uh, involved uh, wheeling and dealing by uh, Ann Promajori, the CEO, and uh, John Hooker, who was a longtime uh, uh, lobbyist who not only did City Hall in Chicago for years, but was a, a big uh, lobbyist for ComEd in Springfield, and Jay Doherty, who was the City Club uh, president for years up here in Chicago. He was also a lobbyist uh, for City Hall in uh, Chicago. And the uh, allegations, a lot of the allegations are that some of Madigan's allies, like a former alderman, uh, some of his top precinct captains, a former uh, Cook County recorder of deeds, had all been put on Doherty's uh, contracts a contract from ComEd as subcontractors, which were not necessarily uh, as open. They were trying to keep them uh, under the radar and uh, they weren't required to do a whole lot of work. In fact, one of the quotes from Doherty that was caught on tape is that uh, 
you know, from day to day, they don't do anything for me or they do nothing or zero or things like that. And so uh, these are uh, a variety of, of uh, uh, alleged crimes that uh, we'll see if the jury goes along and, and convicts them or the prosecution uh, can pull it off. Yeah, Charlie, I want to bring you in on this, too. Uh, like Ray was just talking about some of these allegations, and it's going to give us a look into uh, Michael Madigan in the inner workings of, of how he did his job. That also, I mean, this is going to be, let's, you know, I think it's safe to say this is going to be one of the bigger political trials that the state has seen, certainly since Rod Blagojevich more than a decade ago. Yeah, and I, I think one of the key issues that is going to underlie this particular trial, as well as the Madigan trial a year from now, is whether or not stuff that looks unseemly, stuff that doesn't pass a smell test, whether or not it is under the law actually illegal and a crime. One of the arguments that the defense is going to make, and which uh, Judge Harry Leinweber, the U.S. judge who's overseeing the case, allowed over the objections of prosecutors, is that they're going to argue that the all the conduct that is involved in this basically is politics as usual and not illegal. And that's kind of the defense's central argument in this case, and that'll be also Madigan's defense argument. And one of the things that I think hangs on this is there's actually, I don't believe there's been any documented evidence of Madigan actually being handed a payoff you know, an envelope stuffed with $100 bills or anything like that. And his argument is that, well, yeah, I recommended people for positions. I recommended people for internships. I'm always doing that. That's part of my role as as a, as a political leader, as a Democratic Party official, to help people. So that's going to be an interesting uh, issue coming up. And I think that's going to make it more difficult for the prosecution uh, Judge Leinweber also said that the prosecutors can't refer to the deal that ComEd struck with the U.S. Attorney's Office a couple of years ago, uh, the deferred prosecution, because the uh, lawyers for the defendants in the partic this particular case argued that evidence or, or regarding the uh, DPA, the Deferred Prosecution Agreement, is irrelevant and would only suggest that company statements proves that ComEd believes that defendants are guilty. And Lyndon Weber said, no, you can't, uh, you can't use that. Well, so the, 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 the prosecutor is going to have a, maybe a harder time. Uh, and, and the judge also said that uh, the prosecutors can't bring to the, the stand Dick Simpson, a former Chicago alderman who's now a professor emeritus at the University of Illinois at Chicago, uh, to provide a history of the political machine in Chicago. The prosecution said that his, his testimony would be critical context to the jury to help them understand that the intended beneficiary of payments by ComEd was Madigan himself. But Landon Weber said that he did not find that the subject of this proposed testimony is so enigmatic to require expert testimony. 
and then this is quoting Leinberg now, he says, the court does see, however, how emphasizing the history of corruption and election fraud that marked the early years of the machine could prejudice defendants. So it's going to be an interesting case where, as I said at, at, at the outset, you might look at what these people did and said, man, that's really not on the up and up. That's sort of kinky. But does it violate a federal law? And that's the question for jurors. Yeah, and Ray, I mean, that's that's a good point. The uh, lobbying just in general is often a give and take. People uh, sort of, you know, buttonholing people in a hallway and things are often said. People are, aren't usually assuming that, uh, that that's going to be recorded on tape, and maybe it was in these cases. But uh, again, I mean, I think, doesn't this send a bit of a chilling effect on people who do lobby? Well, I would think so. Um, but... <sighs> You know, it's always been one of those things. It's the same thing with political contributions. When somebody who supports a company's issue gets a lot of um, money and political contributions from uh, you know, that company, then there is the question of, you know, are they just buying uh, or paying off a, a lawmaker and in the... Uh, altruistic lens the, you would say no they have the right to give contributions etc uh, and uh you can do dozens and dozens of stories and they will always say that uh they're not doing anything more than hoping that they have good access to a lawmaker when they when they need to talk to them about an issue but that uh they don't expect to be buying uh buying a vote with a campaign contribution and so i do agree with charlie that the prosecution has a tough uh climb here but uh i think that it's interesting because they usually don't bring a case unless they believe they can get it get a conviction and um in the deal with uh leaving out simpson and line weber's ruling uh, that uh, he said that it's not a, it, enigmatic, like Charlie was saying. Kleinenweber said, look, we can look at the people's own uh, voices in the recordings that they're going to be playing. For example, uh, they talked about McLean. Uh, they used, he, he even listed in his ruling uh, three or four uh, points and discussions where uh, McLean was talking about individuals and had and had talked about the various ward committee men doing this and it's you know we do this and his discussions with one of the uh comment uh, people he was talking about how you know in the old days we used to get meter readers assigned uh, to wards and you'd get so many meter readers but now we got to uh, do something different mm -hmm. and instead uh uh, given out meter reader jobs, uh, these are different ways to to do these types of of uh, accommodations for politicians. And McLean even said, you know, uh, for years, Comet did it with uh, things like meter readers, but then you it's kind of morphed into uh, this new style of of uh, scratching the the uh, legislators back. Ray, you 
have written this book, which we mentioned. We've uh, interviewed you before about it uh, on Michael Madigan, the house that Madigan built. The allegations that you hear in this trial, are they different from what people have talked about him in the past? Because you interviewed a lot of folks who've known him from very early days. Or does it sort of jive with, with the way Madigan did business? Well, the allegations are much more serious than what we could ever smoke out um, with uh, just interviews with with people over over the years. And uh, one of the big differences is that uh, federal prosecutors have subpoena power and uh, the ability to record private phone calls once they get a, a approval for wiretaps. So uh, these allegations and the comments that are made uh, in uh, very candid discussions are ones that uh, are eye-popping compared to what you can get it, uh, often get as a reporter. Every once in a while, you can go into a deep, deep level of, of uh, what's happening. But uh, this ability that uh, law, uh, federal prosecutors have to pull in people before a grand jury, quiz them thoroughly, threaten them with uh, going to prison and get them to talk is a whole lot different than uh, uh, what we've been able to bring out over the years. So the question that you're raising is, has he been doing this kind of stuff over the years and we just didn't have this kind of background recording proof? Um, you know, we don't know that to, to be the case because we couldn't, we didn't have the same ability to track that uh, the prosecutors have used in this trial. Charlie, you you touched on the, the I, I guess, the difficult job that prosecutors may have here. A lot of pressure, I would think, is on the prosecution in this case uh, because of the Madigan trial, still a year away, but if they're not able to get convictions here, wouldn't you say that's going to hurt their case against Madigan? Yeah, I, I think that if the if the jurors find these four people innocent of the, all the charges, that's going to pretty well tube the, the whole Madigan prosecution, in my judgment, because this is convicting these folks would be a precursor because it's it's more obvious that they that they did stuff what's the right word to say? We, we, we don't know if it's illegal or not. Prosecution says it's illegal. Defense says, no, it's just sort of way of doing business. And the jurors by it's the way of doing business when these four people were documented taking very specific actions and where the, the cases, if you will, against them are much more obvious than the case against Madigan. I would say if the jurors find these folks innocent. Uh, Madigan's in pretty good shape. One interesting note, too, that I think I should mention with respect to, to Harry Leinenweber, who's the judge, he would know very well how the legislative game is played in terms of lobbying, because for 10 years, he was a state representative in the uh, mid-70s from uh, the Will County District. And at one time, as a matter of fact, he was uh, my state, one of my state legislators when I was still in Joliet. That's a good point. That means he was also in the legislature when uh, McLean and uh, Madigan yeah. were there too. So sure. it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic on that whole 
role there too. So Ray, just a couple of minutes left here on this subject before we move on, but you're going to be watching and covering this trial, uh, likely, as we said, going to take maybe a couple of months before it's finalized. But uh, what should the public be watching for here? What what would you, you know, for people that haven't been following this case quite as closely and certainly are not legal experts, what should they be looking for in the coverage of this trial? Well, I think what they should be uh looking for and what we'll all be looking for is how tough this case is, how uh, much more they can bring out about their case than they've already put on this, put out in briefs, et cetera. So if we will see uh, them connect the dots, in fact, we have heard from a defense uh, attorney last week, uh, last week during a hearing that the prosecution could bring 70 witnesses. Now, that's a lot of witnesses, and the likelihood is that there will be some former and current lawmakers who will uh, be brought in to talk about how they were lobbied or what they know from what was taking place behind the scenes. So we may see the kind of really fine grain analysis that you can't always get unless you're put on a witness stand and sworn to tell the truth. So I think this will be eye-opening when we get to some of these uh, various uh, people that are going to have precinct captains who have worked closely with Madigan over the years, who have been loyal to Madigan over the years, but are now going to work for the the prosecution. And so we've we've got uh, a real a chance to open up the mysterious uh, uh, operations of Mike Madigan and his vaunted uh, 13th Ward operation here in Chicago. Let's take a couple of minutes here to discuss something else that happened this week. And Charlie, we've been watching for this, the Commission on Government Forecasting and Accountability This is, as we like to say, the legislature's fiscal gurus. They came out with a positive outlook on both the current fiscal year and the new fiscal year that will start later this summer. What was your takeaway from what they had to say? Well, I think it's very positive, and it shows the resiliency, if you will, of the Illinois economy, the national economy, in spite of all these pressures. Yeah, what what CACFA said in the report that came out last week, they updated their revenue estimate for the current fiscal year, which ends June 30th, and they jacked it up by $575 million to $51.9 billion, which is about $5.5 billion more than what was anticipated a year ago when the current budget was enacted. And they point out that uh, inflation is a concern for the nation's economy going forward. I'm reading from their analysis is provided short-term benefits in the form of elevated tax revenues from sales taxes because of higher prices, income taxes because of higher wages, and interest income because of higher interest rates. While there are signs of slowing in certain revenue areas, a sudden shift in trends is not expected, leading the commission to again increase the economically driven revenue sources, the estimates for FY23. And then looking ahead to FY24, they have a conservative outlook 
in the general funds revenue FY24 because of a number of factors, uh, a resurgence of COVID, for example, or what's going on in, in Ukraine or the impact of inflation. Will there be a recession? Those kinds of things. But nonetheless, they've increased their revenue outlook for the coming fiscal year as well. And the new estimate is $50.4 billion, and which is about $4 billion above the FY23 assumed revenue amount. It's still roughly $1.5 billion less than what had been predicted elsewhere. You mentioned the economy remains strong. It's one of the main reasons the Federal Reserve's been raising interest rates so aggressively. If the goal is to bring down inflation and maybe slow down the economy a bit, it seems like that uh, despite this windfall of money rolling to the state, there still needs to be some caution. Yeah, and I think that's what they they were saying uh, in, in their final note was, we still have to be concerned, but for the moment, things look good. And following up on that, after the report came out, the comptroller had some interesting comments. She said, uh, and this is a quote, I think it's great news, but we can't spend money we don't have yet. If those revenue estimates do turn out to be correct, then I would suggest that the first thing we do, rather than to look to spend new revenue dollars, is to pay down existing debts, specifically our unfunded pension obligations. You're here. I think you're about ready to transition in notes in the field, and I wanted to get mine out right now, and that is that uh, don't forget that uh, although you uh, graciously mentioned that I wrote the book, The House that Madigan Built, uh, but uh, Charlie Wheeler was the one who wrote the foreword. And that's because I, I was there from the beginning, and, <laughs> and Ray, he was sort of a, quote, latecomer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, only 40 years of covering Madigan. <laughs> yeah, and I had I had, what? Well, whatever CONCON was, when was that? That was 1970, so there you go. <laughs> Let me mention a note from the field real quick. The state did take some action this week at the Shote Mental Health and Developmental Center in southern Illinois. A large number of patients are going to be relocated, and there's a plan that would repurpose and restructure that facility. That was announced by the governor's office. This comes after reporting from ProPublica, Lee Enterprises, and Capital News Illinois that focused on a troubling situation there involving abuse of patients and other allegations. We'll be talking more about that coming up on coming shows. Charlie, your note from the field. Well, here's kind of another positive thing. The Center for Tax and Budget Accountability released a report, a 50-page report earlier this week, this past week, analyzing the impact of the new funding formula, the evidence-based funding formula that was enacted six years ago on spending gaps in, in equities across the 800, what, 850, however many local school districts there are in Illinois. And they said that the formula boosted the state's investment in public education by $1.6 billion between FY 2018 and the current fiscal year. 99% of that new investment went to districts that had the least adequate funding levels. And under the new formula, there are, I don't know, like three dozen different factors that are analyzed. Uh, how many teachers do you need? How many English as a second language teachers? How many mental health counselors does a school district need based on the kids that it's trying to educate? 
then they come up with a number. Well, here's what you need to be adequate. Then they say, how much have you got available to you? And there's a gap. And the bigger the gap between what you need and what you have entitles you to more state money. And so as this report pointed out, this has been very successful in closing funding gaps between wealthier districts and underfunded districts and increased funding for districts serving more students of color and students from low-income families, which was part of the goal of the law that was passed, as I say, back in 2017. Well, that's all the time we have for State Week. Our panel included Charlie Wheeler and the Chicago Tribune's Ray Long. You can get a podcast of our show at nprillinois.org through the NPR One app or iTunes. Just look for State Week. And don't forget to join us next time. I'm Sean Crawford. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.